2: I'm outside the Francis Crick Institute in London, and in the building, scientists are gathering for the third International Human Genome Editing Summit. Now this is the first meeting of its kind in about five years. And the last one held in Hong Kong in 2018 was pretty controversial. Right at the start of that meeting, a Chinese scientist announced that he'd already edited the genes of two human embryos. This completely shocked the scientific community at the time. Now, gene editing, specifically CRISPR-Cas9, acts like a pair of precise molecular scissors that can cut or edit specific bits of DNA. The technology is only about 10 years old, but what scientists hope they can do with it is frankly amazing. Take sickle cell disease. That's a blood clotting disorder caused by inheriting a faulty gene. It affects millions of people around the world. There's no cure and very few treatments. That's until scientists started to edit DNA. A promising therapy based on gene editing is now in clinical trials. There are thousands of genetic conditions that could be next on the target list for scientists as they begin to tinker with genomes. Now, tackling disease is one important avenue for this tech, but you can bet it'll also be used by healthy people to enhance themselves, whether you want to become more intelligent, have bigger muscles or just be able to run faster, all of which raises some big ethical questions for scientists and for society itself. Who should be using this technology? How should they be allowed to deploy it? And what can anyone do about misuse? That's all under discussion here at the Crick Institute over the coming days. I'm Alok Jha, the Economist Science Correspondent, and this is Babbage, our weekly podcast on science and technology. Today we'll listen in as scientists grapple with the emergence of a brand new technology. Gene editing will change the world. The big question is, how? So it's day one of the conference and I'm here with The Economist's health editor, Natasha Loda. She's been here from first thing this morning. Natasha, how are you feeling about the next few days?
3: Well, it's very exciting to be here. I think the next few days we're going to be hearing some wonderful accounts of how the science is progressing in genome editing, which is an area of great optimism at the moment. I'm quite realistic, though, on the topics of equity and access, which I know are going to be discussed but I'm not so sure we'll see as much about how we commercialise this in a way that allows it to be accessed by all of humanity, which is, I suppose, what we'd all like to see.
2: Well, let's dig into the details in just a moment. But just can you help listeners understand why this conference, the International Human Genome Editing Summit, of which this is the number three, uh, why is it so important?
3: Well, it's important for lots of reasons because every so often researchers come together and they talk about sort of progress and ethics and important issues around genome editing. And in 2018, at the last meeting, a Chinese researcher announced he'd edited the genomes of two embryos and children had been born. And there was sort of a furore over this. It was unsafe work, first and foremost. Uh, He didn't understand really the risks that he was putting these children through, you know, there are possibility of off target edits, for example. And also that this is what's called a germline mutation. So any changes you make of that kind are passed on to future generations. And it was seen as having been very, very much sort of unsanctioned by broader society as well as by the
2: sort of scientific community i mean it's fair to say that was a big surprise back in hong kong in 2018 wasn't it are we expecting such big surprises again in this time around
3: no we're not in fact the chinese government has gone to great lengths to change the rules and regulations governing these sorts of technologies and so we certainly are not expecting to see anything like that although what i have heard this morning is that while the rules have tightened up on this there are some questions about whether it could still happen in private clinics and i would say that You know the issue about regulation is is a global question and even in countries that think they have good governance of this sort of technology you do have to ask the question of whether there are places for example that perhaps don't have such good regulations and that could host the research.
2: How has the story of Dr. Hu Jiankui, he's the Chinese scientist who actually did the gene editing of the, uh, the embryos that you've just talked about. How did his story sort of energize the community around questions like ethics and, and regulation? I mean, those conversations were going to happen at some point, but did it push those conversations forward a bit?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think you sort of see that everywhere, right up to the point where there's a protest against gene editing babies outside this very meeting. So I think it's fair to say that he was very much a lightning rod for discussions that have been happening since.
2: The field of human genome editing is about more than editing the DNA of babies, of course. What other potential bits of science are you looking forward to learning about?
3: Well what's hugely enormously exciting is the potential for new medicines and you know 20 years ago when we were thinking about genetic medicines we were thinking about gene therapies and that's like packaging genes into viruses and we we have that technology today but it's difficult and it's quite expensive and what we've seen over the last 10 years is that this technology for gene editing which is much more simple and it's based on molecular scissors that you can use inside cells it's just accelerated incredibly rapidly and in 2012 like just over ten years ago you had this discovery of CRISPR-Cas9 which really sort of revolutionized our ability to sort of make these genetic edits inside cells and what we're seeing now is is two therapies, one for sickle cell anemia and one for beta thalassemia, that are in phase three trials and could be out to patients in the next year or two. And so that's a phenomenal rate of progress. And that's just you know two of the many, many programs that are going on. The other thing that gene editing makes possible is that not only might we be able to make one genetic change we may be able to make a whole raft of genetic changes at the same time and that kind of opens up the possibilities for treatments in a much
2: much much wider way. Okay Natasha that sounds like a great menu of options. We'll catch up with you a bit later on during the conference.
3: Okay thanks see you later.
2: Those promising treatments that Natasha referred to use a type of technology called somatic genome editing. Somatic cells are any cell in a living organism except the ones involved in reproduction. If you change the DNA inside a somatic cell, it'll only affect the recipient of the treatment and no one else. That's quite different to what the Chinese scientist Hu Kui did in his experiments in 2018, which shocked the scientific community. Dr Kui edited the DNA of two human embryos, The changes he made not only affected the girls that were subsequently born, but will also affect any children those girls go on to have in later life. Dr. Jung-Kui said that his aim was to tweak a gene that would then protect the children from being infected with HIV. But passing on genetic changes to future generations, so-called heritable editing, is, as you can imagine, very controversial. To get a sense of where gene editing technology is at today, for both somatic and heritable editing, I spoke to Robin Lovell-Badge. He's a leading scientist in stem cell biology and developmental genetics at the Francis Crick Institute. Robin has also played a pivotal role in the International Human Genome Editing Summits. He's the organiser of this one at his home institution, but he was also on stage in Hong Kong when Hu Jiang Kui announced that he'd edited the genes of those two babies, I asked him about the 2018 summit with Hu Jiang Kui, or JK as Robin refers to him.
4: Well, like many people, I was shocked. Now, I was always going to be chairing the session that he was going to speak at. So he was an invited speaker to talk about, as far as we knew, his preclinical data, so his data in animals and cell lines. So we met J.K. when he arrived at the hotel on the Monday morning to say, well, is this all true? <laughs> the news story had broken. Is it really all true? And he admitted it was. And so what, you know, asked, what are you going to talk about? You must be talking about this, I assume now. And he was hesitant because he was suspecting that there was going to be a horrible backlash about what he'd done. But we convinced him that he should talk about it. We met him again in that evening, and he said he would talk about it. He was—he was frightened, actually. I think because he knew that he was probably getting into trouble. But we convinced him this is the opportunity you have to tell us what you've done and why you've done it. It may be the only one you'll get for a while. And he gave his talk, and I think everyone was horrified. Ethically, it was wrong. Scientifically, it was wrong. He was, of course, ultimately put in prison for practicing medicine without a license.
2: How have you reflected on it in the last five years, though?
4: What JK did really made that conversation happen. Um, You couldn't avoid it after that. You couldn't avoid it. It galvanized activity, which was very slow to kick off. So there were two big policy things that came out of it. One was the Academy's Commission, which was tasked with, if you were going to do this, how should you do it? What should you do scientifically? What diseases might be the first ones you would try it for? And then there was a WHO committee that was established which I was on which was looking at how might you govern this whole area and it's obviously stimulated a lot of thought around this summit. We felt the science still says it's not safe so you shouldn't do it. The ethics hasn't really changed. Many people will argue you should never do it. Others say well you could do it but only under the following circumstances for these particular disorders. Whereas the somatic genome editing is with us now There are trials, there are people being affected.
2: So the CRISPR-Cas9 technology that allows scientists to edit genomes is around a decade old now, but it's also evolving itself. We're hearing about methods called base editing and prime editing nowadays as well. What are these methods and why do you think they might be better?
4: All types of genome editing rely on cellular processes of DNA repair, but inevitably this leads to errors in the DNA where you have small deletions or insertions can also lead to chromosomal damage. Base editing and prime editing work differently in that you're not creating a double-strand break in the DNA. Now, many mutations in humans that lead to genetic disorders are due to single-base pair changes in DNA. So base editing becomes a very relevant technique to try and treat human genetic disease. You make
2: it sound simple. Just, just well, it transfer, sounds simple.
4: <laughs> but it's not. It's very clever technology. Base editors have turned out to be Really, very efficient. And you have much lower risk of incorrect off target events. So it's a much more accurate and precise way. There are still some, maybe some issues. So the first papers published using it described that you may edit inadvertently sequences very close by to your target. Prime editing is more complex. So you can do, rather than just single base pair changes, you can do small. Insertions, deletions, or substitutions. And you can also do the single base per change of any base into any base. So it's much more flexible. We know less about it because it's much newer and it may not be as efficient as base editing, but it's certainly a technique that a lot of people are now starting to think about using.
2: It feels like the technology itself, the underlying technology, is moving quickly.
4: It's moving remarkably
2: fast. Can you describe for me the delivery mechanisms of current gene editing therapies? Like, How does it get into the body, get to the right place in the body?
4: So there are two main approaches. One we can generally refer to as being ex vivo, where you take cells out of the body, do your genome editing in the lab, and then you transplant the cells back, like a bone marrow transplant. The other approach is in vivo editing, where you have to get the genome editing components into the person. To target the appropriate cell type in that person, appropriate tissue. That is a challenge. So, the methods that traditionally have been used for gene therapy are using modified viruses that don't carry any pathogenic components themselves, but they can take a cargo, which is your genome editing components. And so, you can use those to target cells at general, or you can preferentially infect specific cell types, so muscle cells, for example. The problem is often it requires a huge load of virus to get into the patient. That can be so much that can be toxic. There are also issues about immune rejection, so you have to be careful with that. For some tissues, particularly the liver, one of its roles is to take up things in the bloodstream and deal with these for the rest of the body. So you can use lipid nanoparticles to carry the components and that can be taken up very efficiently by liver cells. But it's such a big area that needs a lot more investment and scientists working on to make the delivery mechanisms more efficient, less toxic.
2: Lipid nanoparticles like the ones used by the mRNA vaccines for COVID, for example.
4: That's exactly right. Yeah. So similar to those that are used for COVID RNA vaccines.
2: Robin, thank you very much for your
4: time. My pleasure.
2: If those methods of drug delivery sound familiar, it's not just because they were used in COVID vaccines. We've talked about them before when we looked at an older genetic technology called gene therapy. That's where a corrected gene is inserted into a patient to replace a gene that isn't working properly. You can find our episode called The Gene Therapy Revolution from October 2022 on your podcast app. Here at the Human Genome Editing Summit, I wanted to understand how gene editing improves on those more traditional techniques and how they might be rolled out in practice. To do that, I spoke to Claire Booth, a professor of gene therapy and paediatric immunology at Great Ormond Street Hospital and University College London.
0: So gene addition strategies are the traditional methods that we've used for gene therapy. And this involves viral delivery of a corrective gene. And that's been used successfully in somatic gene therapy for many inherited diseases now. So we have a long history of that, 10 or 20 years of experience. Now gene editing allows precise correction of genes at their natural place in the genome or the DNA. And there's a range of platforms that are available for gene editing. And some of those are reaching the clinic now. So we've seen gene editing trials for sickle cell disease and some blood cancers. The CRISPR-Cas system is probably the most famous so far. And this involved um, targeting nucleases to a specific site in the genome where a double-stranded break is generated at that site. And then the gene can be repaired if you provide a corrective template. So that's really exciting and holds promise for a wide range of conditions. But we're beginning to understand that there may be some side effects for the cell when a double-stranded break is made in the DNA, and there are challenges related to off-target effects. And a limitation of that approach at present is our ability to efficiently insert a therapeutic DNA sequence at a precise site. And that's the kind of strategy we need for most monogenic diseases. And the successes so far in clinic have been where genes are disrupted rather than corrected. So again, sickle cell disease is a really good example of that.
2: So previous strategies you'd have just inserted a corrected gene it would have gone somewhere into the DNA of the patient and you can keep your fingers crossed that it works in the right way,
0: <laughs> I mean,
2: in a scientific way.
0: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, and there's some diseases that that's absolutely fine for. So for example, some of the skid diseases, which is a severe combined immune deficiency, the bubble baby diseases. You know, we've seen really excellent results with gene addition strategies for several forms of that kind of disease. And so using that gene addition technology hasn't had any particular problems. If we think 20 years or so ago back, The kind of virus that we were using to deliver that transgene to the cells did cause some problems in cases of leukemia in certain trials. But obviously once the field understood that that was caused because of the virus, we were able to change the kind of virus that we were using, move to a lentiviral gene therapy platform, and that's proven much safer.
2: So what kinds of conditions can you actually treat with CRISPR-Cas9 that perhaps the more traditional gene therapy couldn't manage?
0: So some of the certain inherited immune deficiency disorders, for example, where the protein is expressed at a particular time and in a particular kind of cell, those are the kind of diseases that we're looking at to treat with those. But of course, it is being used for gene disruption, which has been hugely valuable in the case of sickle cell disease and leukemias, where you can use that kind of technology to disrupt a gene that's important in that treatment.
2: Just talk me through the sickle cell example. When you say disrupting the gene, what does that mean? And how does CRISPR-Cas9 come into treating this disease?
0: So actually, sickle cell is quite a good example because we've had both gene addition technologies for that and the CRISPR system. And so in sickle cell disease, Because of the mutation in the gene, patients produce a red blood cell that's of a normal shape, not so good at carrying oxygen, and they suffer from painful crises and lots of organ complications. Now, it's been known for some time that if you can increase the kind of another type of hemoglobin, HBF, or fetal hemoglobin, that actually compensates for the sickling hemoglobin. And so transcription factor, BCL11A, was identified, which if you can repress that, that allows fetal hemoglobin to be produced again. So you're not correcting the mutation per se, you're kind of finding a different way around it. And so what the CRISPR strategy does is it disrupts that BCL11A gene, which allows for the production of more HBF and compensates that way.
2: Okay, and so that's something that is in clinical trials and being applied right now
0: yeah so that's in clinical trial with a couple of different trials and, and we've already seen some really promising results well
2: I mean, that's incredibly exciting for a condition that's had millions of people suffering for a very long time with very little treatment for them before now are there other examples of diseases and conditions on the horizon that might get this sort of sickle cell treatment if i can put it that way
0: Yeah, so gene editing technologies will be useful for conditions that affect the blood stem cell system, Uh, so immune system disorders particularly we can use for that, and anything which generally would be cured by a bone marrow transplant that's an inherited disease.
2: Um, How do you go about delivering these therapies, and what's the sort of mechanism for giving them to patients, and where are the challenges there?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you do require quite a a good infrastructure to deliver these therapies. They're obviously quite quite complex processes. So if I just talk about the ex vivo gene therapy. So in that situation, we would harvest a patient's blood stem cells. They would go to a lab. They would be corrected. They would be generally now frozen and lots of tests done to make sure that they are of good quality to be able to give back to the patient. And then the patient would come back and receive those cells, usually after some form of chemotherapy, just to make space in the bone marrow for those gene-corrected cells to engraft. And so that's a kind of therapy that's really only uh, at the moment able to be delivered in very specific centres with experience of that and also potentially centralised manufacture uh, centres that can sort of genetically modify the patient's cells.
2: It does sound quite expensive because there are a lot of <laughs> steps, a lot of labs, a lot of bits of uh, technology that are involved in this. And of course, any new technology that comes along is going to be expensive. What are the thoughts around making this something that more people could access potentially?
0: Yeah, so I mean, you probably heard about the price points or the list price for some of these therapies. So uh, mostly in the sort of 2 million mark. So access is a real issue. And you know, we've seen that already for the gene addition therapies, which have shown us transformative results in patients. And so I guess we anticipate really the same kind of problems with uh, gene editing in the future. You may have heard of Zolgensma, which is a, a gene therapy for spinal muscular atrophy. That's a fatal condition causing like severe muscle wasting. And this is a, now a therapy that's available to patients in the UK, Europe and the US, but at a really high cost. You know, But patients are receiving it and they're benefiting from it. And last week we saw um, the first child in the UK treated with another type of gene therapy, Libmeldi, for metachromatic leukodystrophy or MLD, a, another devastating neurodegenerative condition again a high cost therapy and at the moment that's only available in a few countries but over the past few years we've witnessed these promising therapies not reaching patients for non-medical reasons and the commercial feasibility of such high cost therapies in small populations of patients with rare diseases is challenging and we do need to find new ways to ensure that patients can access these treatments when they need them.
2: As you say, though, this is a problem that's not unique to this sector at all. But what are some of the strategies to making these treatments cheaper? I mean, part of it also is that I suppose each one of these treatments has to be specialized for an individual patient or a group of patients. So it makes it very difficult for a pharmaceutical company, for example, just to churn out loads of it to make it cheaper.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, the regulatory process is challenging for these personalized medicines, and particularly in the context of gene therapy. And, you know, last year, The Economist, you know, you published an article highlighting just this. And we've seen this issue highlighted over and over again across the world, including low and middle income countries. But scientific community patient advocacy groups and regulators are all looking at the challenges here and looking for solutions. And I founded together with uh, colleagues across Europe, the Agora Initiative, with the mission of facilitating access to proven effective gene therapy. Therapies. And we're looking at ways to reduce development and delivery costs by harmonizing regulatory processes, building a sustainable infrastructure network across Europe to get these incredible therapies to patients. And although the regulatory framework is currently prohibitive, and there's a lot of enthusiasm from the regulators to address this issue. We've seen the EMA launch a pilot project to support academic and small and medium enterprises to take these therapies to marketing authorization. The FDA has announced Operation Warp Speed for rare diseases coming soon. You know, so there's definitely a lot more positivity than a couple of years ago to address these particular challenges.
2: Brilliant. Claire, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. The hopes for gene editing therapies are vast. But as everyone I've spoken to so far has alluded to, there are plenty of hurdles still to overcome. Coming up, how to think about the ethical implications of human genome editing. And what does the future of this technology hold?
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot.
2: Today, we're at the third International Genome Editing Summit in London, exploring the future of gene editing treatments. Throughout the podcast, we've been looking at the scientific advances made in human genome editing. But we've also been coming back to the ethical questions that surround the ability to edit a person's genome. A person's genetic code, their DNA, is of course a fundamental part of their humanity. Though scientists can now tinker with it, How far should they be allowed to go?
1: I feel like there are a lot of issues that it unpacks for people. One is, what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to have a disease or illness? What does it mean to sort of have control over those things? I think those are big philosophical questions that we talk about.
2: That's Kelly Ormond. She's a bioethicist at
1: ETH, a research university in Zurich. And then I think there are issues about what does disease or illness really mean for people? How does it impact your life? And when is it worth trying to treat it or cure it?
2: I mean, the last genome editing conference, which happened in 2018, started off with a bit of a concerning ethical question when we discovered that a Chinese scientist had already edited two human embryos. Tell me what your impression of that event was.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that tipped the apple cart over, right? Most of us will remember where we were when we heard that that had happened and what our visceral responses were to that. What was your visceral response? Oh, gosh, it must have been 11 p.m. at night when I saw the news. And I just remember sort of putting my hands in my head and shaking my head and being like, oh, gosh, already we're dealing with this. I think many of us agreed it was premature, both for scientific safety reasons, but also because we just hadn't had any dialogue about what that would look like, right? Up until then, people had sort of shut the topic down. And whether you call it a moratorium or not, there just really hadn't been much discussion about it. So I think it opened up all of that discussion for better or worse.
2: Well, so the discussion opened up, but do you think the incident pushed other researchers who want to do similar things or are thinking about doing things underground, or has it made them
1: more able to talk about stuff? Oh, that's a great question. Probably both is my answer. I'm sure there are scientists that we don't really hear about. I mean, that absolutely could have happened. I think there were a number of early cases where we would hear about scientists who were willing to still try to do it. There was one scientist talking about doing editing for deafness shortly thereafter, and then there wasn't a lot more talking about it from people who were actually trying to do it.
2: So in a sense, seeing how negatively the scientific community and the world at large seem to respond to the editing of the human embryos in 2018 might have been a way of sort of for other scientists to realize that perhaps what they were doing wasn't necessarily going to be accepted.
1: I think it did open up a whole new conversation about scientific misconduct and what was immediately acceptable. And also, if you were working with a scientist who you thought maybe was doing something that was kind of on the border of acceptability or beyond the border of acceptability, what you should do.
2: Now, a lot of conversations around genome editing uh, are always about treating or curing diseases. And Mm -hmm. that's probably the right conversation to be having when you have a new technology like this. But on the horizon are human enhancement questions. Mm -hmm. People talking about, well, using a technology that is there to help cure a disease, well, why couldn't you use that on a healthy person to um, enhance whatever capability you can think of? As an ethicist, how do you talk about balancing treating and curing diseases with the idea of human enhancement? People will use it for both things. So how do you sort of balance those things?
1: Yeah, well, I think that pins them as two ends of the spectrum, right? A bit of a dichotomy. And I think it ignores the whole middle ground, which is all the rest of disease and illness. And you may have categories of patients where they would like some part of it to be treated, but, you know, really... Appreciate how the condition has changed their life in a positive way, perhaps, or has become part of their identity. And then you get down to enhancement, and that's the whole other end of the spectrum. I think most people agree that, for now, at least, enhancement is not something we should be considering. Although I think there are certainly people who are in the futurist side of this that would advocate that that's where we should be going.
2: I suppose that I'm talking about the future, and I ask mm-hmm. this question, which is: at some point, you can bet that someone from the Department of Defense or elsewhere will oh, think they probably already. The- got it. (laughs) They probably are already onto it, aren't they? But just imagine we're in that future. Do you think there should be a restriction on this kind of human enhancement?
1: Or is that a question that's just
2: too naive?
1: I think that we need to have those discussions before it gets to the point of being able to happen. I mean, right now, for most of the things that you would consider enhancement for, it's probably scientifically complex enough that someone couldn't do it tomorrow. But even the talks about biosecurity, I think, are surprising to some of us that haven't focused on it. So maybe the enhancements are things we could do scientifically. That's going to change our society more than treating an illness will, right? I think it will move our sense of humanness in a different direction. And I do think that's really something that we should be having more societal dialogues about.
2: It really is proper science fiction stuff, isn't it? I hope so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yes. When
2: treating diseases and conditions, a genetic diseases, for example, are there any issues around the ethics of that? And what I mean by that is, if you're, say, treating a genetic condition that causes deafness and you solve the deafness, mm-hmm. is that something that necessarily is a good thing? Because there might be a community or a culture based around that particular condition, and I wonder if you lose that... Or perhaps people don't mind about that sort of thing. I mean, what's your sort of take on it?
1: Yeah, I think deafness and blindness and also short stature conditions are the three that kind of spring to mind that really have a community and a culture, right, that's based around that. It is a sense of identity, although that's true for many other disease categories as well. So there, I think it is more obvious that people might be split and that even when we talk about prenatal testing or pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, things like that, that The individuals who have those conditions will regularly say, my quality of life is much better than you think. You know, this is just a part of me. The problem is society and that, you know, you're not accommodating for me and you're discriminating against me and there aren't enough social services. So please fix those things. And those are absolutely important, valid things that we need to keep in mind for all conditions. On the other hand, you have parents, perhaps, who don't have deafness and are worried that their child is going to have deafness and their hearing, and how are we going to manage this, and what is life going to be like for you? Because they're imagining that they've lost their hearing, which they've had for their whole life. So, this notion of losing something that you're used to having versus not having it from the beginning and it's just a part of you is a really important thing. And issues of human dignity come up here, I think. How do we give respect to people who have these conditions? Are we going to create a world where if you choose not to have gene editing and then you have deafness, are you going to somehow have a discrimination against you? So those are both important moving forward. So what's the route through this then in terms
2: of like what kinds of conversations that need to happen to raise these concerns? Because we can't answer them all here, but no. we can certainly think about ways to tackle and address
1: Yeah, I think one of the things we need to do is actually, at a quite young age in school, start talking about illness and disability so that we can destigmatize it, right? Most of us don't always grow up knowing lots of people who have different medical illnesses, or if we do, we might not even realize they have them because they're not discussed. And so I think we need to be more open and transparent about that, and that will probably change the conversations. Okay, Ellie, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you.
2: It's now the final day of the conference, and to help me unpack everything we've learned, I'm joined again by The Economist's health editor, Natasha Loder. Hi, Natasha. Hey, Alok. How are you doing? Are you tired, or have you just been full of uh, gene editing information in this these last few days?
3: Well, I don't think they're exclusive. I'm both. I'm exhausted, and I'm
2: packed full of gene editing. Well, let's go through what you've learned then. We heard just there from Kelly ormond about the ethical questions that are coming up as scientists and regulators start thinking about how to implement somatic gene editing therapies. But uh, Kelly also mentioned a biosecurity angle, which was explored at the conference. Can you tell me a bit more about that? That's right. I've been talking to Philippa Lenzos, a biosecurity expert at
3: King's College in London, who also spoke at the event. She's worried about how genetic health data could be misused, for example, or used to track and suppress people. More futuristically, she's worried about the ability to create genetic weapons, targeted ones, um, and also how the military might use it to create super soldiers. Extremely personal genomic data
5: could also be put to nefarious uses for surveillance, for tracking, for influencing programs, for suppression, and even for targeted weaponry. So there is a security angle to all of this. It's not that it should necessarily overshadow, I think, what are more pressing social and ethical questions, but it is something that we need to be conscious of, aware of, and the fact that Some of this is playing out in
3: terms of geopolitics. Can you give me an example?
5: Sure. I think most of us will remember shortly before the war in Ukraine started, when President Macron went to visit Putin in Moscow, there's this image of the two of them seated at an extremely long table at either end. And the official reason was that, well, Macron didn't want to take a COVID test. And so for Putin's protection, Putin wanted, you know, needed to keep that sort of distance. And it's partly true that Macron didn't want to test. He had tested himself in Paris. He had also tested himself when he landed in Moscow with his own doctor, but he refused for Russian doctors to take samples from him for testing. And the reason is The French government didn't want Russian authorities getting their hands on Macron's DNA. What sort of things were they worried about? Well, genetic data could provide a more sophisticated way to profile foreign leaders, a more thorough way of doing their political homework on their personalities, their decision-making styles, their health, and how long they might last in office. If they have any underlying medical conditions, perhaps. In a darker train of thought, Macron's DNA could be employed to do some of the Kremlin's dirty work to, say, fabricate evidence of an affair or a love child, or they could be looking for genetic vulnerabilities that the Russian intelligence services could exploit. So, of course, why would you go to such extraordinary lengths uh, when there are obviously simpler and much more reliable methods of influencing or incapacitating or, or even murdering an opponent? But at the same time, we know that covert assassination attempts with highly sophisticated unconventional weaponry haven't just happened historically, but we've also seen more recently, to name Sergei Skripal and Alex Navalny, as just two examples of that.
3: So that would work presumably by targeting with some genome editing package a particular portion of the genome and rather than inserting some kind of helpful correction, you would insert an unhelpful correction. Is that the sort of general idea?
5: Yes, that would be one idea. I mean, we don't want to be putting too many ideas out there either. Okay, but <laughs> We're talking about very sophisticated, gene-altering sort of weaponry. We're not necessarily talking about a blanket rollout for entire populations. It might be more specific to, say, assassinations of individuals or smaller groups of people. There is the issue of the vector. How do you Transport something into people's bodies, and there are a number of different ways in which you can do so. It can be through the air that we breathe, it can be through the food that we eat, it can be through insects, mosquitoes, for example, it can be through injection devices, nano robots. It, it can get extremely sophisticated. I think at this stage, we are still not firmly in the realm of science fiction, but much closer to the realm of science fiction. And this is not something that I think is an extremely pressing threat currently. It's something that we should be aware of and have quiet conversations about. It's not something we need to hype as a massive new threat and that we're all going to die from nanorobots changing our genomes tomorrow, right? So we need to be careful and responsible in the way in which we speak about these threats but it is equally important to be raising an awareness that this is a possibility
2: okay natasha that was fascinating now what an interesting couple of days this conference has been can you talk to me about what you've learned what surprised you the most here
3: Well, I think watching Victoria Gray, A Patient, was the most powerful moment. I was at the first gene editing summit in 2015 when the idea of having patients was just futuristic. And there she was. She told the summit just how difficult her life had been to that point.
5: The pain I would feel in my body was like being struck by lightning and hit by a freight train all at once.
3: She went on to tell the summit about how she became the first patient to receive a CRISPR sickle cell therapy.
5: It took about seven to eight months for me to physically feel and mentally accept that I was better. I was able to run around around with my children, attend their football games, cheerleading events, and enjoy family outings. I no longer had to experience severe pain and stop my life just to be in the hospital for long periods of time. My children no longer have a fear of losing their mom to sickle cell disease.
3: That talk also brought home the importance of cost and equitable access, as sickle cell disease particularly has an impact on some of the least well-resourced parts of the world and also some of the poorest members of communities in rich countries. And this is going to be a huge challenge both for this therapy, but also for gene therapies more generally.
2: OK, well, talking about those challenges, can you talk to me a bit more about the cost and access issues that you heard about here?
3: I was really happy to see so much discussion had started on this topic. And within the context of academia, there's actually quite a lot that could happen, you know, for the super rare diseases Farmers just not really interested and we have got models in different parts of the world where we've had foundations and hospitals that have set up to treat rare diseases. They exist today, for example. And so it looks as though that sort of effort is going to push forward for some of these ultra-rare diseases that pharma companies are not interested in. With regards to cost, we do know that pharmaceutical firms do find cheaper and quicker ways of doing things but we also know more cynically that price does not move downwards as fast as it ought to i think the pricing is going to become such a crisis that there'll have to be some movement on this because so few insurers or public health systems will be willing to pay for more than a handful of these therapies so something's going to have to shift
2: It is incredible, actually. Everyone I've spoken to as well at the conference brings up the issue of cost. He's a basic scientist doing research into the technology of genome editing, but also very aware that the things that they're producing are going to be out there in the world helping people to get better at some point. And the fact that a treatment might cost a million dollars per injection or something similar is kind of accepted now because it's still very early stages. But all of them uh, exercised about cost in a way that perhaps I've not seen for drug development before. I mean, is that something you've come across, that basic scientists themselves are this worried about it?
3: It's not something I've seen at this scale before. And I do wonder if the experience with COVID and the sort of gross inequity that we saw with vaccines has really energised people to this question of access. And, you know, if you're a researcher in genetics and you think you've done the science to develop a cure it isn't really a cure if people can't get it. And I think that becomes a sort of moral problem for a lot of these scientists.
2: Well, it's good that they're discussing it early on so that their views get known. More generally, genome editing is something that we've talked about for years and years and years. It's always been something also that's almost a decade away in terms of actual treatments. But actually, we can see around us that those treatments are finally arriving. And I wonder after this summit, how do you feel about it now, compared to what you felt maybe a week ago?
3: Well, it does feel more real. And, you know, just talking to people and hearing about all the sort of drugs that are in the pipeline, the sickle cell therapy that Victoria received may get approval in Europe or America this year. And another firm is looking at a cholesterol-lowering gene editing technology. There's a beta-thalassemia drug also that's well-advanced in development. So how do I feel? I feel very positive And it's going to be an exciting year.
2: I think that the th- second Human Genome Summit was overshadowed a bit, wasn't it, by the, uh, the, the gene-edited babies that uh, were produced by Hugh Giang-Ku. Um But this one seems to be much more about the science, much more about actually getting people to think about what's coming next. And I just wonder if you've got any predictions for the uh, Human Genome Summit, the fourth Human Genome Summit, wherever that <laughs> might be.
3: Well, yeah, maybe I do. Actually, the next summit, I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about progress in editing sperm and eggs. And then there's also quite a bit of progress just starting on what's called epigenetic editing. And that's not where you change the actual letters of the DNA, but you try and control the way that genes are expressed. And that's a very exciting new field.
2: And I'll leave you with that tease. Do you know what? That last thing, the the epigenetics thing, I hadn't even thought about that. That's incredible. So (laughs) that's a whole new world of complexity. It is. All right, well, Natasha, thank you very much indeed. Go and get some rest.
3: All right, thank you. You too, Alok.
2: Our thanks also to Robin Lovell-Badge, Claire Booth, Kelly Ormond and Philippa Lensos. And thank you for listening. Now, if you can't get enough of conference season, this week's science and technology section in The Economist comes straight from the meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science in Washington, D.C. If you want to read that coverage, you'll need to subscribe to The Economist. Head to economist.com podcast offer for your best introductory rate. The link is in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing by Nico Rofast and Tingly limb. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Jha, and in London at the Francis Crick Institute, this is The Economist.
3: Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit.